Let's get ready for the Word of God this morning. If you come with me to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 12 actually, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll just give you one moment to find that while I pour myself a little drink to wet my whistle if necessary. Hebrews 12, I'm just reading verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight. Now for those of us who from time to time travel somewhere by air, we are well accustomed to weighing our luggage uh, before we go to the airport. Uh, we know that every carrier has its own uh, weight limits depending on which company you fly with. And there's a limit to what you can put in your big case to put in the hold and there's a limit to what you can put in your hand luggage to carry on with you. Now depending on who is at the ticket desk at any given time, they may allow a little discretion and maybe will allow you maybe a kilo extra. However, sometimes you get a very officious person and they will not allow you one gram extra. And in fact, they will insist that you pay access baggage, which if anybody has ever been caught with that, knows that that can occur a fairly hefty charge for just a little extra weight. Now, Sally and I got one such person at Perth International Airport in Australia. Uh, we had come, waiter cases, knew that we were just absolutely on the limit because we were going to the Hendersons in the Philippines and we had lots of Christmas presents from people and from us. So we knew we were just on the bubble, as it were, uh, but anyway, we took the chance and we went, and we got one such person, and we were overweight. And she said, you will have to pay excess baggage. And we looked at each other, and she says, if you want to take them over to the side and maybe rearrange or some way and say, if anything can be done, I come back again, we'll weigh them. But we knew we were done for. And we knew what we knew the reason why we were done for. And that was because we already felt we were on the limit. Now, either Sally's sister's scales were away off or we miscalculated. But there was a big knife block given by her brother-in-law to us. Now, you know what a knife block is? You have one in your kitchen. There's about six big knives, a big heavy wooden thing. Weighed a ton. It was teak, I think it was. Weighed a ton. And we had it in the big case for the hold because we knew we couldn't take it on our hand luggage, obviously. And so, no matter what we did, something had to go. We certainly weren't going to pay any excess baggage, so something had to go. It was the knife block. And so, as we left the ticket desk, there was the knife block sitting in front of the lady for her to do with as she wished. It may be in her kitchen, I'm not too sure. Or it may be in a lockup somewhere in Perth. But anyway, the moral of the story is, travel is light as you possibly can, or else you will be penalized. And in life, travel as light as you possibly can. 
Because we go around, many of us, carrying excess weights. Stuff that weighs us down. Lay aside every weight, whatever that may be. And there are lots of things that cause weight in our lives. Now the Roman soldiers and, sorry, the Roman athletes and the Greek athletes, uh, often in training for their uh, particular events, they would deliberately wear weights. But then when it came race day, uh, they would have to cast aside those weights. In fact, the Greeks were fond of running naked. They stripped off everything that would hold them back in order that they might possibly win the race that was set before them. And so I say to us today, we need to cast off the weights that we may run this race for Christ. Guilt can be terrible baggage to bear. Guilt. We may look back in our past and find a ton of guilt lands upon our shoulders. We may feel shame, disappointment, failure, and we relive the scene. We hit the replay button again and again and again. It's all right. That's just Miles' fell of his perch up there. But he's okay now. And we just constantly relive it. And the worst thing about it is we have already repented of it. We already know that Christ has forgiven us. We already know the blood has covered us. We already know the account has been settled. But somehow or other, it keeps resurfacing in our thoughts, in our mind. And we think, if only I should have, I wished I'd never. And that becomes our recurring theme. So how do we stop the cycle? How do we stop dwelling upon that? I think that we need to nip it in the bud. When that thought comes, you can't stop the thought coming, but when that thought comes, it's what you do with it when it comes. If you mull over it, think about it, meditate upon it, go over it and over, it'll kill you. So how do you nip it in the butt? How do you stop that? Well, sometimes you're going to have to say it out loud. You're going to have to verbalize something. You're maybe going to have to say out loud, I am forgiven. And emphasize it and mean it. Rather than sitting thinking about it over and over, say it out loud, I am forgiven. The blood has cleansed me. Lord, I believe your promise. In 1 John 1 and 9. 
If I confess my sin, you are faithful and you're just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's God's word. And there's going to be times you're going to have to actually physically say that with your mouth, that you hear it with your ears when you say it, rather than just think about it. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Somehow or other, God has got the capacity not just to forgive us our sins and not to forget about our sins, but to remember them no more. If you forget about something, chances are you can remember it at a later date. I'm at the age now where I forget a whole lot of things. And then I remember it later. Do you ever go to bed at night and somebody's name, you, just, you, can't, you can see their face, you know them, but you just can't get their name. You go to bed at night, you toss and turn, and then suddenly at three in the morning that name comes up. Oh, I can go to sleep now, I can rest now. I'm at that age. But God has got the capacity not just to forget your sins, but to remember them no more against you forever. It's not even in his thinking. It's gone. So why should we keep going over it and over it and over it? Guilt can be terrible baggage to bear. Now you did notice I said at the beginning, we had repented. If we haven't repented, then we should and deal with it. But having repented... It's amazing how our flesh or how the devil will just try to torment your mind with those thoughts. Worry can be a terrible burden to bear. Some people say, I'm just a born worrier. I could write a manual on worrying. If worry was an Olympic sport, I'd win the gold medal. I worry about everything. I worry about the weather, the economy, state of the nation, state of the world. I worry about my kids, my family, my grandchildren. I worry about my job or lack of my job. I just worry. I'm a worrier. Some people's proud that they're a worrier. They think there's something wrong if they didn't worry. They feel guilty if they didn't worry. The trouble with that is, though, it flies in the face of Scripture. It's in defiance of what God tells us to do. You say, well, it's just a natural thing to do. But the point is, as believers, our life is just not natural. The rules that we have are different than the rules the world has. Although you wouldn't think it sometimes. Philippians 4 and 6 in the Living Bible says this. This is quite... Simple and direct. Don't worry about anything. So that covers everything, doesn't it? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Then Paul says, tell God your needs and don't forget to thank Him for the answers. <laughs> Say, David, is it as easy as that? 
They didn't say it was going to be easy. But that's the admonition. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. When you start to pray about something, it certainly helps you not to worry about it. Matthew 6, 34, in the NIV, it says, Jesus said, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But we tend to borrow tomorrow's troubles, don't we? Trouble is, God will not give you any answers for tomorrow's troubles. He'll give you answers for today's troubles today. And He'll give you answers for tomorrow's troubles tomorrow. But He's not going to give you tomorrow's answers today. It's one day at a time. One step at a time. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Why worry when you can give it to him? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. I read about a businessman who was a terrible worrier. Business wasn't going well. He worried that he may go bust. Business was going well. He worried would it last. He worried about his competitors, would they steal his idea? He worried about his product, would the people who love it now, would they not love it in a year's time? He worried about everything. And a friend told him, well, why didn't you go and get some counsel about that? So he went to the doctor. His friend met him a few weeks later, and he was a different man. And he says, what happened? He says, you're a different man. Oh, he says, it was great. Went to the doctor. And he says, I'm paying him to worry for me. <laughs> he says, how much did it cost you? Oh, he said, it cost a fortune. And he told him how much it cost. And his friend says, but you haven't got any money to get. He says, how are you ever going to pay him? He says, that's for him to worry about. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Remember the little, little ditty said the robin to the sparrow, friend, I'd really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. We'll not read it, but Matthew 6, towards the end of it, is the antidote to worry. That's Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. He talked a lot about not worrying. But anything. Even to the point of what we eat and what we wear. Right down to the very basic needs. Worry can be a terrible burden to bear. Fear can be an awful weight to carry. Some fear of their fear of their past is going to catch up with them. Some fear of their future. They're afraid of tomorrow. 
afraid of war, afraid of terrorism, afraid of being left on the shelf, afraid of failing the exam, afraid of not being accepted, afraid of not fitting in, afraid of being coming fat. Big issue today. Some kids are so afraid. Torments them. The list is endless, isn't it? And fear can emotionally drain you. It can physically impair you. It can spiritually cripple you. The word fear, by the way, in the New Testament is phobos, which is where we get phobia from. But in the New Testament, it can be used positively or negatively. In a positive sense, uh, there's things that we should be afraid of. I'd be afraid to stick my fingers into a live electrical socket. And if you had any sense, you'd be afraid of that too, wouldn't you? You'd be afraid of sticking your hand in the fire. That's a sensible, smart fear. But then there's the fear the Bible talks about that has torment. A tormenting fear. A phobia fear that limits us and stops us and holds us back. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about being afraid of a wee mouse. I remember years ago in the factory where I worked, the blood transfusion service used to come around regularly every six months. And uh, it was all men I worked with. And uh, whenever it came around, some of those men, you know, they acted the big macho men, you know. Oh, here, take that arm. It's full of Johnny Walker. And take that arm. It's Arthur Guinness in that arm. You know, it was all, it was all big joke and a big laugh until the nurse came with the needle. <laughs> wow. And then the blood drained from the face. It went white and quiet. And some of them fainted. <laughs> Just the thought of that wee pinprick. I was in the... Craig often one night in the NE with somebody, I forget who it was, but somebody and I was in, and there was a guy come in in one of the cubicles and he went absolutely ballistic. <laughs> the doctor came with a needle and he wouldn't let him jag him <laughs> and he was fighting him off. <laughs> oh dear. But I'm not necessarily talking about those types of fears. Some people, it's a terrible fear of failure. They will not do anything in case it doesn't work. If I try it and it doesn't work, I'm going to look a mug. So they never do anything. Or if I try it and it does work, can I cope with it? If it does work, if it's a success, can I handle that? And consequently, they never do anything. They're always forever held back from risking something. They want to live in a no-risk zone, comfortable without any risk whatsoever. Now, for most people, there's a part of that in us. But you soon find out you don't get very far in life if you don't risk some things. Edgar Guest, the poet, I found this the other day. Wrote this funny little poem. Somebody said that it couldn't be done. But he with a chuckle replied that maybe it couldn't 
But he would be one who wouldn't say so till he tried. So he buckled right in with a trace of a grin on his face. If he worried, he hid it. He started to sing as he tackled a thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. Somebody scoffed, oh, you'll never do that. At least one, at least no one has ever done it. But he took off his coat and he took off his hat, and the first thing we knew he had begun it. With a lift of his chin and a bit of a grin, without any doubt or quibbling, he started to sing as he tackled a thing that couldn't be done, and he did it. There are thousands to tell you it cannot be done. There are thousands to prophesy failure. There are thousands to point out to us one by one the dangers that wait to assail you. But just buckle in with a bit of a grin, then take off your coat and go to it. Just start in to sing as you tackle a thing that cannot be done, and you'll do it. It's easy to laugh when the battle's fought, and you know what, that the victory's won. Yes, it's easy to laugh when the prize you sought is yours when the race is run. But here's to the man who can laugh when the blast of adversity blows. He will conquer at last. For the hardest man in the world to beat is the man who can laugh in the face of defeat. <laughs> Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1 and 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, of cowardice. Some people are afraid to tell others about Jesus because they may not accept them or they may laugh at them or they may want to argue with them. And that's a fear that we need to overcome. Sure, there'll be some laugh. Sure, there'll be some not accept it. Sure, there'll be someone to argue. But there'll be some who'll want to listen. There will be some who will receive what you say and are ready to receive what you say because the Spirit of God has been dealing with their heart even though they don't know that. But you're the one who's just come along at the right time and you said the right thing. And the Spirit of God has pricked their heart and opened them up to hear. Psalm 27 to 1. The Lord is my delight and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Way over in the book of Proverbs. First. 25 of chapter 29, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. In chapter 9, verse 10 of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord, the respect, the reverential respect of the Lord, not a cowering fear of the Lord. Because He's our Father. God is our Father. You know, my mother was a wee woman, skinny as a rake. Uh, my father was quite deaf all of his life, and so he never heard me chicken much. But my mother did. Oh, she had cloth here. She'd hear the grass grow. And many a time I'd come up the hall like that, and you're a wee boy because you knew you were going to get it. And if you didn't get it around the ear, you got it around the legs. And she used to always have a, a wet cloth 
Oh, that wet cloth. I'm going to skate with that wet cloth in the back of the legs. It stung, so it did. Didn't do us a bit of harm, by the way. She'd probably got arrested today if she did that. Fear of the Lord is a good thing. Fear of man is a bad thing. Fear can be an awful weight to carry. Hatred is too great a burden to bear. So said Martin Luther King Jr. And he knew what he was talking about. And in a speech he talked about, in his area, the sheriffs, the hatred in their eyes that he saw. It was a terrible time in America's history. But he says, I have decided to stick to love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Coretta Scott King, his wife, said that hate is too great a burden to bear. It injures the hater more than it injures the hated. You know, you can hate somebody and they may not even know it. Or they know it and they just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's your problem. I'm going to live my life. And you go on in your hatred and your bitterness. And it eats you up. And it'll do you more harm than it does them. Hate is access baggage that demands a great payment. It will eat your very soul. It will be like a canker in your spirit. There's absolutely no place for hating in the Christian life. John, who was the great apostle of love, in 1 John 2, 9 and 11, here's what he said. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. I talked to a Christian one time and he absolutely hated a relative of his. And I tried to point out that that's wrong. I even read that scripture to him and said, but you can't do that. He says, I don't care, I do. And to the day I go to my grave, I'll hate him. Sent a shiver up my back when he said that. And he still lives with that hatred in his heart. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43, Jesus speaking said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Isn't that a powerful statement, isn't it? I mean, that ran counter to everything they had believed. It runs, runs counter to our very nature. It shouldn't run counter to our new nature in Christ, but it runs counter to the old nature. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. We need the help of the Holy Spirit for that one, don't we? Golda Meir, who was former Prime Minister of Israel, she said, as long as the Arabs hate us more than they love their children, there will always be war. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? Benjamin Netanyahu, the present, current Prime Minister, repeated those words very recently in a speech in America. As long as the Arabs hate us more than they love their children, there will always be war. What hatred drove Hitler to kill six million Jews? How black was his heart of hatred that did that? What hatred drove Osama bin Laden to plan the murder of thousands and thousands of innocent people in the Twin Towers? What immense hatred caused that? What hatred caused 30 years of murder and mayhem in our own nation? What hatred caused the IRA to plant bombs in cafes and bus stations and blow to smithereens innocent people? What hatred caused the shankled butchers to murder innocent Catholics who were just going to work or coming home from the cinema? What hatred caused that? The very same hatred that caused Cain to slay Abel in the garden. The very same. And it's the very same hatred that caused so much evil in this world today. Follow man has got the capacity and the propensity to hate on a large scale. Jesus was hated without a cause, the Bible says. The religious crowd hated with a passion the Lord Jesus. He was pure, he was innocent, <laughs> spotless. Never did anybody any harm. The opposite, he only did good. Healed all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Raised their very dead. And yet for all of that, they hated him. They despised him. The very thought of his name caused their stomachs to turn. They hated him without a cause. In John chapter 15, verse 25, Jesus said that would fulfill prophecy about him. They hated me without a cause. Man doesn't need a cause to hate. <laughs> it's that sin nature. It's off the devil, isn't it? 
So how did Jesus respond to that hatred, that vitriol that was poured out upon him continually? Even to the point where they took him up to a steep precipice and wanted to throw him over. Imagine coming out of church and wanting to kill somebody. Eventually, of course, they did. They put him on a cross, didn't they? They lied about him, put him on a cross, killed him. How did he handle all of that? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, there's a legitimate hate. There are things that we should hate. We should hate what God hates. God hates sin because he knows the consequences of it, both in the short term and in the long term. And it's not good. It's an affront to him. And he hates it. So we should hate it. He hates injustice, and we should hate injustice. And we should hate the the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable in society. Because God hates that. God loves the poor. He had all kinds of provision for them in the Old Testament. No wonder the Bible says the common people heard Jesus gladly. So how do we handle hatred? How do we handle that? I'm not saying you do, but there again, you might. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what's happened in your life in the past. Maybe you say, preacher, I've got every right to hate that person. After what they've done, that would be wrong of me not to hate them. Well, If you're a believer, you haven't got that right to do that. So how do you handle it? Pray for the person you hate. You may start out through gritted teeth. Lord bless that stinker. (laughs) You may start out that way. But if your heart is right, eventually you will be able to pray for them. Somebody says it's amazing how God blesses the people I don't like, isn't it? Maybe he just deliberately does that just to wind you up. (laughs) I hate that person. Well, I just bless them. See how you like that. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. So pray for the person you hate. Then you've got to let go of it. told you the story before, but it's worth repeating. Corrie ten Boom. Precious Dutch lady, the late Corrie ten Boom. Saw her whole family uh, murdered at Ravensbrück concentration camp. She survived. She was a believer. Lived in America for many years. 
had the privilege one time of meeting her in her home. She prayed for me in Dutch and asked me to pray for her in English. Can you believe that? I couldn't believe it. pastor took me to see her when I didn't know where I was going. We came to this house. He rang a doorbell and she opened it. I think the noise, second noise she heard was my chin hitting the floor. But she said that she was saved and after that she had to deal with all of that hatred and bitterness against the Nazis. And she said she was preaching one night in a church in America and she was talking about the love of God and forgiveness and dealing with bitterness in your heart and meeting went very well. She wasn't speaking in a vacuum. She had been through it all. But she says after the service was over she noticed a man coming up the middle aisle towards her and instantly she recognized him as a guard at Ravensbrück. says she froze. And he came right up to her and he says, Fräulein Ten Boom, I've been listening to you tonight. I'm a believer too. Christ has saved me and he's forgiven me. And he reached out his hand and he says, can you forgive me too? And she says, at that moment, she says, hatred rose up in her heart that she thought she'd dealt with. <laughs> But she had just seen him. Suddenly, hatred rose up in her. And she says, I instinctively put my hands behind my back. But he kept it right out there. And she says, at that moment, I just hated him. But then she says, the scripture came to me. Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And she says, just as quick as that hatred rose up in my heart for him, just as quickly love rose up in my heart for him. It was supernatural. She says, there was nothing in me could do it because I hated him. But she says, God took my heart and in an instant changed it. And she says, I reached out my hand and I says, I forgive you too. There may be some things that only God can do with us. Maybe it's not in us to do it. But he can put it in us to do it. Or, finally, you may have to leave the offender to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And sometimes you just have to leave somebody with God. Maybe there will be no resolution. Maybe there will be no making up. Maybe that person's hatred towards you will remain and get worse. And you may not be able to do anything about it other than leave the offender to God and say, God, I'll leave that to you. I can't change it. I can't do anything. But I don't want it to weigh me down. I'm not going to walk about with this for the rest of my life. I'll give it to you to deal with. Let us lay aside every weight. And of course, there's many more. It's just a few. You may have your own weight that I haven't talked about this morning. There may be something in your life right now that's a weight and you're struggling to deal with it. 
God can help you. The mercy of God, the compassion of God, the love of God can help you right now, today, to handle that weight. That you may be able to cast it off. And what a freedom that brings when you can cast that off and it doesn't bother you anymore. What a freedom there is in that. We're going to pray first and then we're going to break bread together in a moment. But we're going to pray. It could be that something I said this morning maybe resonated in your heart. could be you're sitting thinking, David, it's none of those things you spoke about, but if you only knew, if you only knew how I felt right now, such a weight on me, I carry it about with me every waking hour, can't seem to get rid of it. Well, let's pray this morning. Let's let at the foot of the cross. And say, Lord, this is too much for me. It's too big for me. I don't know what to do with this other than give it to you today so that you may help me and give me the strength and the grace to rise up and to go on and to put the past in the past. And to make a fresh start. So will you do that today? I'm going to pray a simple prayer. You can follow my prayer or you can pray your own prayer in your heart. But whatever it takes, you're not going to carry this weight around with you forever. Lord Jesus, I come before you right now. You know my heart. You know every thought and intention. You know all the situations of my life. You know how I feel. You know where I am right now, this Sunday morning, in this house. And Lord, I'm reaching out to you for your help, for your grace for your mercy, for your strength. Lord, to be able to release this weight to you. Lord, I don't want to carry it any longer. I can't. It's killing me. Lord, I want to release it to you. Lord, instead of that fear, give me faith. Instead of that worry, Lord, give me trust. Help me, Lord. Replace that with that which is good and virtuous and holy and right before you. So Lord, I commit myself to you today. And I commit this weight to you. And I lay it at your feet. And I say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives me the strength right now to do this to the glory of God. In Jesus' name.
Now we're going to break bread together. I'm going to invite those who are serving to come.